6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Now, Paul, with having said all that, anticipates two objections. If, if Christ is greater than the angels, how can that be? Because he became man, which is lower than the angels. How can, become, how can he be above the angels if he became man who is lower than the angels? That's a good question. That's a good question. The other problem is if Christ died, how can he be greater than the angels? Angels don't die. Christ died. How can he be? Those are two reasonable objections. And Paul will demonstrate that is his humiliation and suffering, which is the cause for, of his exaltation and glory. His inheritance came about because of his willingness to lower himself, become man, and subject himself voluntarily, even unto death on man's behalf. And his glory then goes beyond all these things. So in chapter 2, one certain place he testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visit? We talked about all this time, last time, Psalm 8, what is man? And the reference to man or the son of man is not talking about Adam. It's talking about, because Adam was not the son of man, he was the son of God. We're talking about the son of man. And the last Adam is a title that Paul uses of Jesus Christ. And it goes on in this, he was made a little lower than the angels. Now the word there is brachus, which can mean short or small or little. It can be of place, like a short distance. It can also be of time, like a short time, like a little while. That's the way it's used here. Thou has made him um, for a little while lower than the angels and so forth, and crowned him at glory and honor. And we went through the whole macrocosm last time that we're in a digital simulation, something that the Bible has said all along, but we'll move on here. Thou madest him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and set him over the works of thy hands. And Adam, through sin, forfeited his dominion. Did he ever have dominion over the angels? No, no. Thou crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. The last Adam gained dominion over everything, angels included, because the last Adam was the creator of the angels in the first place. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. That's going to happen when? At the end of the millennium. Christ completed your justification of the cross at Calvary. Great. Is he finished? No, he's not. He's finished with our redemption, yes. But it's going to take a thousand years of his effort to put all things under the Father's feet. There's a lot to be done here in his kingdom. He's got a, he's got a handful. And Psalm 8 deals with all of this. Unfinished business remains. But eventually we're going to be joint heirs with him if we're faithful. Wow. 1 Corinthians 15 tells the whole story. But now is Christ risen from the dead and became the firstfruits of them that slept. By since, and for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive. 
But every man in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, and after they that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh the end, get this, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till death, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Delivered up the kingdom of God. Why? Last verses here. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted that which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son himself also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's the purpose of the whole panorama. Okay, that God may be all in all. Continuing in Hebrews, then we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. He tasted death for every man. And by the way, this phrase alone should put an end to the debates from Calvinism about limited atonement. I'm going to spend a lot of time on that, but recognize that there are views that are widely held that are not biblical. That's one of them. Christ died, tasted death for every man. Not just those that are saved. All are eligible for that. And de his, his death was anticipated all through the... We have to build on that here. And so... So... Uh, and salvation is another demonstration that manifested divine grace. It overcame the prince of death to free the believer from the fear of death. And we talked about all of that in detail last time. So this is, this is the warm-up for this session. <laughs> Chapter 3. Now we're going to go to the second pillar of Judaism called Moses. And we want to understand what lessons from Israel's failure in the wilderness are there for us today. Romans 15.4, Whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning, that we through the patient and comfort of the Scriptures should have hope. So all these things in the Old Testament are for us. And they forfeited their inheritance there. Can we? That's the alarm of the author to his readers. So we're going to go through the second warning of five. We've been to one already, chapter two. And in this classic outline, we're now moving down to the Better than Moses part of it. Christ is superior to Moses. There's probably no man other than Jesus Christ himself that God has honored more than Moses, right? The name of Moses appears more times in the Bible than any other proper name, except, of course, for Jesus and David. 847 times. 762 in the Old Testament, 85 in the New. For God's hand upon him as a babe in the bulrushes, miraculously preserving him from his enemies, Pharaoh and onward, to God personally digging his grave on Mount Nebo and burying him. So Moses was very much honored. And Moses also honors God greater than any other man, we're told in John 8. So Moses was a man of God, but Christ was God himself. Moses was a descendant of Abraham. Christ was sinless. Prophet of God's truth, Moses. Christ was an embodiment of God's truth. Moses was a priest. Christ was the high priest. Moses was actually king in Jeshun in Deuteronomy 33. And of course, Christ is the king of kings. Moses delivered Israel from Egypt. Christ has delivered them from eternity. Moses built an earthly tabernacle. Christ's place on high. Moses led them through the wilderness. 
Christ is going to lead them to glory. In every way, in other words, the writer's making that point. Okay. Again, we have one of these Pauline wherefores. Because of all that, wherefore, holy brethren, and we're now actually in chapter 3. We made it, didn't we? Holy brethren, be partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Whoa. The wherefore. It's a Pauline pointer that points from what went before to what's now coming. Holy brethren, notice the readers are saved. He's deal- don't, let, don't lose sight of that. It's important for what's coming later in this epistle. You've got to need to understand that these are saved people. Okay, holy brethren. And he speaks of a heavenly calling, which again brings a heavenly inheritance. They're partakers. Oh, this is a very key word we're going to hear a lot of in this, chapter, in this, uh, in this epistle. The metakoi. They're partakers. That's, that's going to be a distinctive, very favorable label we're going to be aspiring to. Now, here's a very strange word. It's the only place in the New Testament that calls Jesus Christ the apostle. He's regarded here in the context as the apostle to the Jews. Wherefore, we brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. This is the only place that he's identified as an apostle because the writer is regarding him as the apostle to the Jews. Paul knew that his mandate was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That's why if Paul wrote this, he would not sign this letter as an apostle. He's simply highlighting some facts for them to consider. Why? Because Christ is their apostle, not Paul. That's his posture. He's fearful of what a lawyer would call supererogation, assuming an authority he didn't have, so to speak. So he's the apostle. And that's, that's again, in my opinion, another undergirding of Paul's uh, authority in this, in this, uh, in this uh, epistle. So he, we do not think of Jesus as an apostle. No, but the apostle means the sent one. Of course, Jesus was the sent one, sent by the Father, of course, and so on. And uh, it's interesting that every story... Every anecdote, every detail in the Old Testament speaks of Jesus. And you got it, when you discover that for yourself, it gives you a whole new awe of the integrity of the Bible as a package. And he, Jesus was both a prophet and a priest. The difference between a prophet and a priest is in the direction of the communication. A prophet is God's representative to the people. He proclaims, exhorts, presents God to the people. The priest is the other way around. He presents the people to God. He's people's representative before the Father. Today, our priest is Jesus Christ. Not his mother. Not some human appointed office. That's, and the word profession is, to, is consent, subscribe to, declare. And holy breath. If one is born of the Spirit, then he would have the same Father, and therefore he's considered a brethren. Holy brethren is what the writer is using here. Continue to the second verse. Who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Moses, he's saying that Christ is above Moses, but he first of all establishes Moses. Where was he? He was faithful. Why? He never withheld God's word from either Israel or the Pharaoh or whomever. He was faithful in erecting the tabernacle. There are places Moses blew it. We'll talk about that a little bit. He made some mistakes. But he is designated in Numbers 12 and elsewhere as a faithful apostle. And Jesus even notes that Moses spoke of him in John 5, 46. 
And by the way, that validates Moses as the author of the Torah, and also that he was speaking by the Spirit of God, uh, uh, none other than the Messiah, Messiah or that Jesus is the Messiah. It all ties together. And that he had built a house, that he, this man is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. This is again extolling Christ up a notch. Because Christ was tempted as we might, so he's in a position to help us. Now the word house here is the house of Israel. And Moses participated in the founding of a nation, the house of Israel. Jesus built the house, and Moses was faithful servant in the house. But Jesus built the house is the point. He's arguing here that the builder has more honor than the occupant and more honor than the house itself. Every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which are to be spoken after. The writer is here in the last few verses and here speaking of puns. He's going to use a pun here. Now what do I mean by a pun? We usually use, a pun is a deliberate connotative transfer. It's where you take a word and change the context. We usually do that for humor. We'll, 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 we'll often have a piece of humor that bases using the same word in two different contexts. A deliberate connotative transfer is what we call a pun. There is an illegitimate connotative transfer that leads to a logical error, and we'll encounter that later on in our discussions regarding later chapters in the Epistle of Hebrews. But anyway, but Christ is the Son over His own house. He's dealing with a different house here, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. There are three houses in view here. They're mentioned seven times in these few verses. There's the house of Israel. And the point you need to understand is Israel was a redeemed people. They were a redeemed people. We'll come to that later again. Also, he speaks of the household or family of God. Also, the house of God, as the Spirit indwells you. You are the house of God, aren't you, if the Spirit indwells you. We also speak of the house of David or the house of Aaron. We really mean the family uh, in, a, in a tribal sense. Christ as a son over his own house. What house is he talking about? That's far more than just the house of Israel. Why? Because it includes you and me. We are in his house in that sense. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope that we have. Oops, 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 oops. There's a word there. Did you catch it? But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, fine so far, but now we got a milestone. Whoops. If, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. If. Can we leave this house? Must we do something? Do we have to be faithful? The role of the apostle is faithfulness. Christ was faithful to testify of his Father's glory, not his own. Even as a child, we see that he was about his Father's business. Remember when he's 12? Luke, they talk about when he, you know, I must I wish you not that I must be about my Father's business and so on. Okay, there's seven proofs of his superiority. Moses was an apostle, so was Jesus. Moses was a member of the house. Jesus was that. He involved in a single house. Jesus, all the houses. Moses was just a man. Jesus was God. Moses was just a servant. God, Jesus was a son, and that's above. Moses had testimony of all things. Jesus was the substance of what he of those things, and Moses was just a servant in his house, and, and Jesus was the son over his house. Well, now we have these five warnings. Remember, I said there's five warnings. I want you to put them in a package and keep this in front. Of you. The unity of the five warnings. All five warnings are a unit. 
They go together and complement each other. Each builds upon the other. Each intensifies until the final capstone uh, warning. The writer relies heavily on Israel's exodus as an example or type for individual Christians. The writer is going to really lean on your knowledge of the Old Testament history here. The Exodus generation, they were a redeemed people and they failed to heed God's instruction and was judged for its disobedience. That's the whole point of what we're getting into here. Five warnings. All were written to believers. They do not represent any chance of loss to the past aspect of salvation. That's justification. That's not the issue here. So we're not challenging the eternal security of the believer. The warnings admonish the believer to press on and obtain all that God has promised to the faithful overcomer. The warnings represent the very real possibility of the loss of privileges or rewards that are offered to the believer, which will be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the focus uh, and burden of the writer here. So who is this written to? Christians. Each warning will substantiate this fact. The correct interpretation of the book hangs on the answer to one question. Were the people addressed believers or unbelievers? Saved, unsaved, or half-saved? I'm being facetious. Two dozen times the author includes himself in the warnings and admonitions. And this will be emphasized when we get to chapter 10. Because I'll be able to ask the question, does God urge an unconverted half-saved professor to hold fast to his false profession? I don't think so. That just demonstrates the converse. Why these warnings? Because God in His love and mercy saw fit to move the author of Hebrews to warn his readers. That's one reason they're here. The author loved the recipients enough to warn them of impending danger. And of course, God wanted future readers, that's you and me, also to understand the grave danger that accompanies apostasy. So what's at stake? What are these believers going to lose, forfeit, or suffer? Not salvation. We talked about John 10. That nails it, remember? Rewards at the judgment seat of Christ is the whole burden of the writer. And we cannot escape this by applying it to other people. The burden of Hebrews is not the rescuing of sinners from hell. It is the bringing of sons to glory. He's asking immature people to mature and grow. So we looked at the danger, the, the danger of drifting the first time in chapter 2. The, the burden of today, tonight's lesson is the second warning, the danger of disobedience, the loss of inheritance. So read in Hebrews 3, starting about verse 7, Wherefore has the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Now, the provocation we'll talk about. It's a very key milestone in Israel's history. In the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. I, so I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. That's Hebrews. We're quoting verses 7 to 11. But as you can tell, it's quoting the Old Testament. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost, notice what he's, this is a quote lifted from Psalm 95. So let's just take a look at Psalm 95, and I'll give you the verse before. It says, Come now, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if ye will hear His voice, 
Harden not your heart, as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation of the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. That is a sobering. God didn't have to swear, but he did. I swear in my wrath. When God says that, that's something to tremble before. So see, in Hebrews 7, it says, Wherefore the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation. This is a quote, as I say, from Psalm 95, 7 to 10. But I want you to notice, the writer says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, this ascribes by the writer the psalm to the Holy Spirit, not to David. David was the penman. But the writer here is ascribing Psalm 95 to the Holy Ghost, right? I want you to notice that this attributes it to the, this is always attributed to the Father. Hebrews 1 1 was to the Father. Hebrews 2.3 was to the Lord, Hebrews 3.7 to the Spirit. We have embedded in the whole fabric of the epistle of Hebrews, the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by tying those three, ver those three verses together. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation. That's a strange term. What do we mean by that? It's a term used in the Psalms and in the, in, in, all the way through. The Greek word for provocation is parapikrosmos. I know that you really need to know that. I'm very anxious to hear about that. But anyway, it's used only three times in the entire New Testament. And all three times it's used in this chapter. So it's a key thought here. See, altogether, the children of Israel provoke God ten times. Numbers 14 mentions to us. Provoke them ten times. But the turning point for the history of Israel was at Kadesh Barnea. And that's what's called the provocation. It's a specific one that carried heavy, heavy dues. God says, When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do err in their heart. They have not known my ways. See, where, there's another one of those Pauline wherefores again. Double-edged linkage. They have not known my ways. My ways were seen in Psalm 68, Psalm 145, the duty to obey him is in Psalm 143. His precepts are all through Psalm 119. 150 verses. 27, 30, all the way through. His precepts and so on. They have not known my ways. They do always err in their heart. That's exactly what God says in Deuteronomy 9, 24. Ye have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So there, there are no shining examples of faithfulness, are they? So God says, So I swear in my wrath, ye shall not enter into my rest. Wow. See, in the historical sense, they're talking about them wandering in the wilderness for 40, a 40-year 40 spiritual detour. It was an 11-day journey that took them 38 years to accomplish, in effect. So God took an oath. That in itself should get our attention. Over two... Over a million, some say two million, were saved out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. They were delivered out of Egypt. Across the Red Sea, they watched the Egyptians drown. They were fed with manna every day and with quail and so on. Out of over a million that were redeemed, only two inherited. 
And Moses wasn't one of them. Well, they weren't saved. Moses was saved. He was at the Mount Transfiguration in Matthew 17. No, they're saved. But they didn't inherit what God had set aside for them. They blew it. When Israel ultimately crosses the Jordan, they do anything but rest. They had wars and failures. What do you mean enter into the rest? That's going to be your assignment for chapter 4. We're going to deal with what on earth is he talking about entering into his rest. What does that mean? Don't allegorize the Jordan as death or entering heaven. Songs do that. Don't let that confuse you. And what on earth is entering his rest? They shall not enter my rest, God says. What is he talking about? We're not going to conjecture now. That's really the subject of chapter 4. But the writer says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Unbelief is sin. Deuteronomy 9, 24, we saw it there. In departing from the living God. Departing. Aphistomai. To cause, to withdraw, to remove, to stand off, to stand aloof, to desert, withdraw from one, to fall away, to become faithless. That's what aphistomai means. Is that what we're guilty of? Let's hope not, but let's understand what we're talking about here. Departing from the living God. Living God. That's the Father in Matthew 16. It's the Son in 1 Timothy 4. It's the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 6. It's fascinating that that term in the, in the Word of God is applied to the Father in one case, the Son in another, and the Holy Spirit. Again, you've got the Trinity taken for granted in this structure. And the living God dwells in you. So you want to understand what that's all about. I won't take the time here. We'll keep moving. I want you to be sensitive, though, through to Jewish exegetical principles. We generally, we're dealing here with the Jewish mind speaking to Jewish readers. And the author has a pattern of extended expositions from the Old Testament. And that's a, pat, a style that is rare in the New Testament. But it's very common in the rabbinical mind. Okay? You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.